Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this is uh, not going to be an easy message, uh, partly because my, he- my voice is only in my head <laughs> at this point. I can't hear uh, very well. Uh, but it's not going to be easy either because of the subject matter and because of the passage of Scripture we're looking at today. They are words from Jesus, and it, they are difficult troubling words that he shared with us. Uh, Before we get to the text, though, I want you to imagine, uh, well, think of those times that an airplane crashes. Every time a jetliner goes down anywhere in the world, it's front page news, it seems. And it seems every time a plane crashes, it's on the news and it says, you know, 150 people die in the crash of an airplane. Recently, there was an airplane that went down and uh, it was in another part of the world and we all heard about it. And I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning you wake up and you read this headline, 100 airplanes crash, 26,500 dead. What do you think the response of the nations of the world's governments would be? What do you think the response of the UN would be? If all around the world, 100 planes went down and 26,500 people died. I mean, there would be congressional hearings. There would be parliamentary meetings. There would be, uh, there would, they would close down airports to investigate what happened. There would be lawsuits against those responsible. There would be questions into airline safety. There would be questions into passenger safety. There would be fines levied, perhaps, against those who were negligent. There would be all sorts of hearing and effort and energy put into trying to solve the problem concerning airline safety. Well, did you know that a hundred airplanes went down yesterday and a hundred airplanes went down today and a hundred will go down tomorrow. These planes though were full of children. You see, every day, 26,500 children die of preventable diseases and preventable consequences from their poverty. Every day. By the end of this year, 10 million children will have died from preventable diseases, illnesses, starvation, because they're poor. Why does this not make the front line the front headline of the newspaper. Why does that not make the evening news? Why aren't there government meetings and inquiries into why this tragedy continues to happen day in, day out, day in, day out? And why... Is your response like my response of feeling overwhelmed and going, you know what? There's really nothing we can do. So let's just turn away from it. You see, part of the problem is that it is somebody else's kid. 
Part of the problem is that they are children far away from us. Now, imagine that you're reading the newspaper and there's a headline and it talks about the starvation and the, the, the difficulties of getting food and water to children in different places in Africa. And, and you read it and for a moment you're sad. You might even pause and say a little prayer and just kind of grieve that reality. But if you're like me, you eventually turn the page and you go to the sports and you go to the entertainment section and you get out and you look at the advertisements of what is there to buy and am I interested in any of the things that are available for purchase. But now imagine... That this morning when you woke up and you're about to walk out the front door to get into the car to come to church, there was a starving baby on your front porch. Just step over it. Or would you grab that baby up and you would rush to the hospital so that it would get the necessary medicine and the necessary nourishment to sustain its life. And you might even skip church. And you would pay the bill to make sure that this little one, this little one's life, that they make it. Which would you do? And why is one different than the other? Well, part of it is, is because if it's a baby in front of you, you see it, you look in its face. It strikes you as I can do something. But when you read a statistic, 26,500, 26,500, far away, far off, distant, remote, you don't think with the same urgency. You're not moved with the same feelings as when you see that child. The difficulty is, Jesus had strong words for us in regards to the suffering and to the poor in this world. Jesus had strong words for us in regards to the least of these amongst us. Now, one of the things that if you stick around for adult Sunday school, uh, you're going to hear a story by Rich Stearns, the president, uh, the CEO of World Vision. And he shared about a friend of his in college who went through the Bible. And he literally cut out all of the verses in the Bible that have anything to do with poverty. Did you know that there's 20, there's, excuse me, 2000 verses in scripture that deal with poverty or oppression and God's desire for the poor. This man went through his Bible and he cut out every single verse that dealt with poverty. And at the end of it, he had a Bible that was in shambles, but sadly he called it the American Bible. Because many times we turn our face away from those suffering. In fact, look at this quote from Rick Warren. I found those 2,000 verses on the poor. And by the way, it wasn't Rick Warren that cut his Bible up. It's another guy. I found those 2,000 verses on the poor. How did I miss that? I went to Bible college, two seminaries, and I got a doctorate. How did I miss God's compassion for the poor I was not seeing all the purposes of God. The church is the body of Christ. The hands and feet have been amputated and we're just a big mouth known more for what we're against. Rick Warren, who is the number one selling author in the world. He has sold more books than any author ever of the purpose driven life. And he 
feels convicted as he searches the scriptures and he realized that his book, The Purpose Driven Church, The Purpose Driven Life, didn't even talk about those 2,000 verses on poverty. And now Rick Warren and his wife have started an initiative to reach out to the poor and the suffering and the hurting of this world. Now, I told you it would be uncomfortable, right? You've had warning. And it's going to get worse. Because we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about this issue. We're going to look at Matthew 25. And Matthew 25 is in a series of parables and stories concerning the end times. And the stories and the parables have to do with the suddenness of Jesus' appearance. We're we're not going to know when it happens. So if ever I release a book that says, you know, 11 reasons why Jesus will return in 2011, do not buy it. And by the way, if somebody else writes a book, 11 reasons why Jesus will return in 2011, don't buy it. It's a waste of money. You already know it's a real good possibility that he could come back in 2011. It's also a really good possibility that he could come back in 3011. You see, we need to live our lives as if Jesus is returning today, but we need to plan as if he's not going to come for a hundred years. The scriptures don't tell us. But it does say he's going to come like a thief in the night. It does tell us that it's going to be sudden and none of us can expect it and it will happen. And the parables give different aspects of our needing to be prepared, of needing to be ready, of needing to be watching. And then this story that Jesus shares, the sheep and the goats, is a story about accountability. A story of judgment and accountability when Jesus returns. Hear the words of Jesus from this parable. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Now, that's not uh, particularly interesting, by the way. I mean, we tend to think the right and the left and the left is a bad place. We tend to think that because of this parable. But in Jesus' day and age, it wasn't a big deal to separate things and put them on the right or left. So don't read too much into that to begin with. Then the king, Now, who's the king? Jesus is referring to himself as the king. And by the way, he rarely did this. Rarely did he call himself the king. So when he does, take note. Now, one thing that's interesting with kings, they're not elected, right? One thing that's interesting with kings, as we learn from Proverbs, the king holds the power of life or death in his hand. One proverb says it's even in his tongue. The words he speaks. He can take your life. He can give you life. So Jesus is saying, I am the king. I'm the one who has the authority to judge. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. Now listen to their response. Lord, when? Did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Do you hear the surprise? They're surprised because they are taking this literally. I, Jesus, never saw you hungry or thirsty or needing clothing or a stranger or sick. I never saw you like that, Jesus. I I don't understand. I'm surprised that I'm a sheep here. Then he will say, well, excuse me, the the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, when it says truly I tell you, Scholars have wrestled with what to do whenever Jesus says the word truly. Uh, The word is simply the word amen. It's kind of a strange use of it at the beginning of a sentence, right? Because where do we put it? At the end of a prayer. Amen. And here Jesus says, amen. I tell you. Now, one thing that I think, and, and unfortunately, our translations don't bring this across, and I just recently read this. It was by a Jewish scholar who's looking at the New Testament and how Jesus uses this word, amen. And he thinks that this is a Hebraism. Now, if you're not interested in linguistics and whatnot, just sit there and don't listen, and we'll get back to you in a moment. But the interesting thing is, when Jesus says amen, it's often at the end of a statement of somebody else. So like, if you think about the parable of the good Samaritan and, and the man says, you know, Jesus asked him who had mercy on him. And the man says the one or who acted as a neighbor to him. And the man says the one who had mercy. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, he says, amen. I tell you, I mean, we used to have a gal here in church, Sandy Ming, and she was my amen pew member had one. And when I would say something true or something that she liked or whatever, she'd say, amen. Let me suggest to you, that's probably how Jesus is using the word amen throughout the scriptures. That it'd almost be better to say, right on, brother. (laughs) Preach it. That he's more just affirming the truth of what they said. Doesn't that make a little more sense to say truly? Because wouldn't we expect Jesus to kind of always tell the truth? So for him to say truly, I tell you, well, at least he's not lying. (laughs) He's a little bit worried. I mean, it doesn't make sense that he would say truly, I tell you. It would make sense to say what you're saying is true. For them to say, when did we see you? And for him to say, yeah, you're right. You never saw me. That's true. That makes a whole lot more sense, I think, than to say, okay, I'm always going to tell the truth, but just in case you were were a little afraid of that, truly, I'm going to throw that in there. I think it's far more likely that he's saying, right on, you're exactly right. You never saw me like that. And then he goes on and he says, right on, 
I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You're right. You never saw me like that. But whenever you did it for somebody who is one of the least, you did it for me. Back to those crashing airplanes. You see, your behavior, this is a key point. You need to hear this if you're taking notes, write this down. Your behavior demonstrates what you believe to be true. I mean, we know this, right? I mean, don't we know this? Your behavior, how you act, shows the world what you believe to be true. It does. It always does. That's why people who stay far away from church, and the reason they give is because it's full of people who talk a good game, but don't walk the talk. They're right. They're saying faith without works is dead. And Jesus says faith without works is dead. So these people aren't saved because they did this. They did this because they're saved. These people aren't made right with God because they did this. It's because they are right with God through Jesus Christ that they did this. Does that make sense? Can I get an amen? amen. Where's Sandy Me? She's in heaven. She's busy. Well, not in heaven yet. She's present with the Lord. So we know that if we trust in Christ, if we are the righteous, then there will be evidence. And if there's not, you're a goat. You see, if you have no evidence that you love others, and especially the least stuff, because that is the litmus test that Jesus has given here, how you treat the least of those in Ray, Colorado, how you treat the least of those in this world is God's litmus test. Do you get it? And the reason that's the litmus test is because Jesus did this for us, didn't he? Scripture says that when we were poor, we had nothing to offer. When we were naked and starving and, and we were far from God, when we were dead in our sins, when, when we were enemies of God, Jesus left the comfort of heaven, left the riches of His glory, left His crown and His robe and His throne, left everything that he had and put it on the line and put flesh on and came and lived. And as we learn during Christmas time was born in a manger, born in a stable because his parents weren't wealthy enough. There was no room for him. Uh, he came and he became a person who had no home. He became a person who became dependent on the good will and good nature and giving of others for his food, for his shelter, perhaps even for his clothing, at least for three years in ministry. And if Jesus was willing and able to do that for us, and if the goal of us knowing Christ is to become like Christ, 
Doesn't it make sense that somebody who's done that for us would expect us to do that for others? You see, that's why that is the litmus test. Are you willing to live God's will for your life? You see, Jesus was tempted regularly to be a savior without a cross. He was tempted regularly to just, you know, save yourself. Destroy this in a flood again. No loss. Start over. You're God. But instead, he entered this world of suffering and pain and death. And he identified with it to the point of death and suffering on the cross for you and I. So I ask you, could you suffer a little bit this Christmas? Could your kids suffer a little bit this Christmas so that you might help some of the least of these in this world? Would you be willing to suffer a little bit? You see, once you know this stuff, you just can't turn a blind eye to it. And that's why we're taking some folks down to Costa Rica in August of 2011. And if you're interested in coming with us, the deadline for sign up is December 1st. And I'd encourage you to come with us. None of you are too old. Some of you might be a little too young. But if you want to come see what God sees every day, some of the least of these in this world, Maybe you need to come and open your eyes to this. Well, he ends this by saying, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Those who love the least through action demonstrate that they know God that they know Jesus Christ and they will be rewarded. You see, all of us will be accountable. And this is one of the more scary areas to be held accountable, isn't it? Because these are called sins of of omission. These aren't sins of commission. This isn't, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. I didn't cheat. I didn't punch my neighbor when they made me mad. I didn't burned down my neighbor's home. I didn't, you know, I mean, that's sins of commission. These are the sins of omission. I heard one time this sermon, or I heard one time these statistics, or I saw one time a picture of a baby, or I did these things and I did nothing. It's always bugged me about Jesus because I would much rather he gives me a checklist of the things that I was good in that I didn't do certain things but it's challenging when his checklist is did you feed hungry people did you give thirsty people water did you give naked people clothing did you care for sick people did you visit prisoners That's a much more difficult list. So my prayer for you is this. If you don't know any of the least of these, perhaps you need to just search your heart a little bit. 
Ask God to reveal to you somebody who's the least of. Maybe there's somebody in mind that lives in Ray or in Yuma County. And I want you just to come up with ways that you could show the love of Christ to them. A meeting, a physical need, or helping them in some way. And if after you think about that, you can't come up with any least of these people, then I challenge you to go find them because they're there. In fact, there was a survey done. They asked Christians, I mean, devout followers of Jesus, did Jesus spend time with poor people? And 80% of them said, absolutely, yeah, Jesus spent time with poor people. And then later in that survey, they asked them, do you spend time with poor people? And only 2% answered yes. If Jesus spent time with the poor, isn't it weird that we can worship and admire and adore Jesus and claim that we are like him and not do the things he did? So if you search your heart and you can't think of any poor, any least of these that you are aware of and you're helping, then you need to get in the game. What scares me most about this passage is that the goats were surprised. You know what that means? There are people here today who think that Jesus is going to welcome them into heaven. Who he will say no to. Does that scare anybody else besides me? There are people here today who will have right belief, but will not have done anything about that belief. And Jesus will say, you didn't really believe it then. Who's the fire, the lake of fire prepared for? Satan and his angels who have right belief, who have right knowledge. They just didn't act on it. Well, next week, if you forgot your steel-toed boots, bring them next week. And I do want you to hear that I am, I am equally challenged with these words from Christ. I am. This is not easy stuff. And when we become aware of the amount of suffering in our world, I don't pretend to have any easy answers. But let me just share briefly what we've done. We sponsor three kids. One in Haiti, little girl, a little guy in the Dominican Republic, and a little guy in India. And we sponsor these children and they, because of our sponsorship, and it doesn't amount to much, like a buck a day, they get food, at least one good meal a day that's provided for them. And they get clothing and they get an education. And our money that we give to Compassion International and to the Delete Freedom Network, and you could choose World Vision, and there's a number of entities out there, but it's helping three kids in this world. See, I'm not rich enough and I'm not smart enough to know what to do with a hundred kids. 
but I can do something for three. And I wrestle, maybe I need to add a fourth. Maybe I'm not sacrificing enough. And so I don't want you to walk out going, well, 100 kids, 26,500 a day. Boy, I don't know what to do. I'll just, I won't do anything because I don't know what to do. Would you pray and find a way to at least help one? Would you? You know, we say Jesus would have come die on the cross for just one sinner. Would you sacrifice for just one? Let us pray. Holy Spirit, sink this into our hearts, the sheer tragedy that's going on in this world around us. Forgive us when we are jaded. Forgive us when we are selfish. Forgive us when we are apathetic. Forgive us when the only verse we know in Scripture about the poor is when Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to these children and to the many thousands of people in this world, the many millions of people in this world who suffer daily. I pray that we would put our faith into action. There'd be no doubt that we love Christ and that we are the righteous. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you, which He's done. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. May the Lord smile on you. And may you share that with others so that at the end of the days, it'll be revealed that you are a lamb, a sheep, God's redeeming. Amen.